3. John chapter 3, we want to welcome our center worshipers here with us this morning. And uh, just a few months ago, Pew Research Center released some staggering information. Staggering in terms of what Christians across the board believe. We're talking in our church family and among our church family about who we are. And who we are is so much anchored in this concept of what we believe. But just a few months ago, Pew Research shared in polling thousands of Christians across America that 52% of Christians believe that some non-Christian faith could lead to eternal life. And one of the most important things that you and I have got to, no, 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 let's back up. The most important thing that you and I have got to understand is how does someone come to faith in the Lord Jesus? How do we have eternal life? What is the roadmap for that? I mean, we talked a little last Wednesday about this. I mean, uh, whether a, a group of believers chooses to use robes in a choir loft or not, whether or not you have elder-led governmental system of your church or your staff-led or, I mean, I mean, it doesn't matter what model so much as it matters from a theos standpoint of theology, we need to know how does one have eternal life? How does one rejoin the creator following physical existence? And at least half of all Americans right now believe half of all Christian Americans. That you know what? There's all kinds of ways that someone can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That survey went on and asked, just among Christians, how many of you believe that your denomination, your religion is the only way? 29% says, well, the Baptist way is the only way. The Methodist way is the only way. The Bible church is the only way. But there were 65% of those polled that said many religions could possibly lead to eternal life. And so among these Christians, they said, okay, how do you get there? I mean, is there something you've got to do? And what they did in the survey is they said, let's divide this up in things that you do, behaviors, if you will, and then things that you believe, a belief system. How many of you think certain things that you do bring you to heaven? How many of you believe that it is a belief or a faith concept that brings you in terms of existence with the Lord Jesus past this physical life? It was quite interesting because 30% of all those polls said it's something you believe. But just 1% less than that said it's something you do. And that's interesting because others said, we believe it's a combination of the two. 10% said, hey, it's not one or the other, it's both. Believing certain things and doing certain things as a combination. And then they asked this question, for all you that had some form of action, what do you think the actions are that make sure you'll have eternal life with the Lord Jesus? The number one answer was to be a good person and to live a good life, 29%. Others said, no, it's treating others. In fact, it's kind of like the golden rule. 16% of all those said, it's how you treat others that will determine your eternal existence. And then the third category, 11%, we've got to act like Jesus. We've got to live a Christian life, if you will. 
8% said it's the 10, it's the 10 commandments. That's what does it. If you can obey the 10 commandments or get pretty close to that, then heaven is assured for you. 2% said it's by living your own principles. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Out of a Christian pool of people, 2% of those that put, were, were, were questioned in terms of action-oriented things said you just got to live by a certain pool of principles. It's very obvious. It's even more obvious in a time that this buzzword of intolerance has surfaced to an insurmountable level almost in our culture that, you know what, so many are shrinking away from suggesting what the Bible teaches us that you know there's but one way to go to heaven, regardless if you're a Baptist or a Methodist or whatever you are, whatever denomination you may affiliate, or if you're non-denominational, there is but one way. And so today, I want you to understand who we are. And there's five statements I want us to jot down together, and then we're just going to jump right into John chapter number three. And I want you to jot these, these five statements down. Well, most of them are jotted down for you. There's a couple things I want you to fill in. Now, before we fill these in, I want you to understand the word salvation used in our biblical text has many meanings. I mean, think about that. When you go back and just look, for instance, at our New Testament, we know the word salvation is used over there in Matthew 8, 25 in terms of a rescue from some kind of dangerous situation or destruction. We know if you go to Matthew 9, it, it's used there. There was salvation brought to this individual when it referred to he was healed from a disease. If you look over in Philippians, salvation is mentioned the word in terms of solving a problem a problematic situation, if you will. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about those references in our Bible where salvation speaks to eternal life. And so what I'm gonna do in our five statements of what, who we are and what we believe is I'm gonna use the word regeneration. It concerns me a little bit that we'll get bogged down and the multitude of meanings of salvation in our New Testament. But surely with regeneration, there, that ought to be as clear as we can make. A regenerated life is a life changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Five statements, I just want you to jot them down. They're important. Number one, regeneration is an experience of being born again or from above. Now those are some terms that we're familiar with. To be born again or being are being what? Saved or regenerated from above. Second statement, regeneration is an instantaneous work of God's grace, shaped by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. Now we know that even though we're saved in an instantaneous moment upon receiving that free gift of the Lord Jesus, we know our Bible teaches us that there's a continuation, that we, we're not just saved but we know there's additional concepts there, don't we? We're being saved every day. And we're moving to a sanctified state in the end with the Lord Jesus that our salvation will be fulfilled. We would use the word glorification for that. But that's another day, okay? Third statement. Regeneration brings about a new creation in Christ Jesus. Our Bible teaches us that regeneration, being saved, 
brings about a whole new creation in Christ Jesus. We are transformed. We are regenerated into a whole new being. Now you say, well, I, I didn't notice my face changing or my height or weight so much. And again, this is speaking to what? The inward person. We normally would have said an inward man, but I'm sure thankful for all the ladies that are here today. <laughs> the inward person, all right? Number four, regeneration result, result, and this is important, of the conviction of sin. When we recognize and the Holy Spirit does a work in us that, hey, I, I am a sinner, <laughs> I am a sinner. When we're able to, 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 to the, the result of that, repentance from sin. We know repentance means to turn, to go in another direction. The belief in Jesus Christ and then the confession of that faith. Let's look at it again. Regeneration is a result of the conviction of sin, repentance from sin, belief in Jesus Christ and the confession of that faith. And then finally, jot this down. In the aftermath of our salvation, regeneration is being declared righteous and justified before God. Now, if you don't agree with any of those five statements, then you have just disagreed with two very important documents, one more important than the other. You've just disagreed with your New Testament and your Bible, and you've also disagreed word for word from your Baptist faith and message. And so today, I want to talk to you about that. And to me, man, that's just a lot of stuff right there. I mean, there's a lot to chew on right there. And so what I want to do is spend some time today and take you to a picture. Because if statistics are correct, 86% of you that are in this worship service or at the center or on viewing us online today, live streaming with us, if that's true, about eight out of 10 of you are visual learners to begin with. So I wanna head over there to John chapter three and I wanna take those five statements and I want that to live out in panoramic picture for us. Almost like we're pulling up an incredible seat to a movie and watching all this unfold before us. Let's read from God's word. And here's what God's word says, John chapter three. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, Rabboni, literally, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, say to you, unless one is born again, again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, well, that's Spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but, but do not know but do not know where it comes from and where it's going, so everyone who is so everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him and said, 
are you the teacher of Israel? I don't think the NIV probably does the best job of translating that. We'll get to that in just a moment. But, and do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 11, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen, and you do not accept our testimony. And this is an incredible start to a moment, if you look there in your Bible, where over in the second chapter, Jesus is just coming out of a big episode cleansing the temple, isn't he? You look back there in John chapter 2, you see this is where Jesus early in his ministry went in and just cleaned house, cleaned the courts. He was sending a message there that, hey, what we're doing here, this is not holy. This is not righteous worship. And coming out of that, the Bible tells us something fascinating. The Bible says we know that the leadership had been teaching that salvation was to be born of the Jewish culture, nationality, and then that there were certain things that one must do in order to be saved. And the Lord Jesus coming out of that cleansing of the temple and under that kind of leadership arrives, the Bible says, at night. Now, you can't take this too lightly. When you look at the Gospel of John, and man, it took us almost three years to go through it over there across the street on Wednesday mornings, this whole concept of light is a big thing. Now, we have a painting in our home, a Thomas Kincaid painting. He's known in our culture as the painter of what? The painter of lights. We're so thankful to have that painting. Actually, right now, it's hanging in my office. That's why we keep my office locked with a certificate guaranteeing it on the back. But understand, John was really the writer of lights. You come out of John chapter 1, and he's talking about the light of the world and how God created light. So don't take lightly. I mean, there's so many times the gospel writers didn't identify who came. It just says this man or this woman or a sick man or a sick woman or one from a fishing village came. We have the name mentioned here. And not only that, but we have the time of day or in this case, the time of night or at least under darkness that this one came. By the way, his name is significant. Nicodemus. We know what the word Nike means, Nicodemus. It means to be victor or conqueror. We know a number of you like to wear workout gear that has the Nike swoosh on it. That, that's a symbol of being victorious. Nicodemus' name means ruler of people or conqueror of people. But it gives us more information. Look in verse 1. He was a Pharisee. We know what that means. I hope we know what that means. 35 and 35. Those 70 men made up the Sanhedrin. They were the equivalent in our culture of the Senate plus the Supreme Court put together. The Sadducees would be the more liberals. We won't get into any modern-day political parties here. The Pharisees would be the more conservatives. And, of course, as Americans, we would ask, 35 and 35, what if it's a 35 to 35 vote on certain things? We know there was another one that sat in the Sanhedrin, that being the high priest. And he would, if there was a tie, cast the deciding vote. 
And so we know this is not just any man. This is a significant man. This is a man named a conqueror of people. If you look over there in verse 10, you see that he wasn't just any man named a conqueror of people, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was the teacher. He was the teacher. That's significant. Here's a man that didn't just show up to Jesus under the cover of night that didn't know anything. He would have been the speaker in the BSF groups, the teacher. He would have been the small group leader. He would have been the teaching pastor. He would have been the seminary professor. It wasn't just any man that showed up. It was the teacher that showed up under the cover of darkness. And this is so very important as we're just absorbing all this as readers because it's interesting because Nicodemus in verse number two gives great homage to this one that's teaching named Jesus, Rabboni, Rabbi in our English Bible. And that's a, that's a great phrase of distinction. That's speaking of one that was educated, one that was prominent. But that's interesting because we, we know our Lord and Savior had no formal education. He was not a Sadducee. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a Herodian. I mean, he was not even a scribe. He wasn't an Essene, one of those migrant guys that hung down there around the Dead Sea. He was just a carpenter, a carpenter's son of all things from Galilee. And yet Nicodemus says, Rabboni, teacher, revered one, respected one. I have a question for you. And he began to unfold the question. And this question was very important. Look at it. The very essence. He acknowledged who he was in verse 3. Jesus answered to him, this is truly, truly today I say, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, ladies that are here, ladies across the street, ladies streaming with us, would you agree that men in general, let's not stereotype everyone here, men in general have the tendency to be a little bit fewer of words and just like to come to the point? I love this because here's two guys. One comes to Jesus in the cover of night, and it doesn't take long. There's not a lot of pleasantries. Jesus didn't say, hey, I don't know exactly who you are at this point, but why don't we sit down and have a cup of tea? Jesus just cast the sword of grace right into the very need of this man speaking to him out of the dark shadows. And why is that so important, speaking about who we are? Because Jesus himself, God himself from above, is about to unfold for us a visual picture of the one way that a person can be assured to have eternal life. The one way that a person can be regenerated.
You see, that's who we are. We are what our Savior said we should be. A people that believe that there's one way to be regenerated and one way only. No small talk. He takes his sword of grace. He thrusts it. Now, this is what Nicodemus wanted to know. This was the heart of the issue. This is what he had come for. He's come at night now. He speaks not just of the time of day, but he speaks this whole element of where he is spiritually. Out of this darkness, that's where he is spiritually. And it's because of the legalism. It's, it's because of the trappings of what he's been covered in all of his life that Jesus now speaks two very important things. I want you just to make note of this on your little outline. Two things that Jesus is going to make, is going to speak to. He's going to speak, first of all, about the darkness of religion and how that distorts the truth of Scripture. The darkness of religion and how it distorts the truth of Scripture. In fact, verse 4, when Jesus said, you've got to be regenerated, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus in verse 4 immediately says to him, now how can that be? How can a grown man like me crawl back in my mother's womb? And again, just showing the struggle that he's having. You see, salvation is impossible. It's impossible for something in terms of a man to do. We can't save ourselves. And we understand, I hope, that even in the Old Testament, out of this sacrificial system. It was just a, it was a precursor to the coming of the Lord Jesus and that new covenant be established that the blood of animals had to be the remission, had to be the covering of sin. There was always a sacrifice that had to be paid throughout history. And so surely the teacher should have known this. The resonating of, of, of his teaching should have brought him to this, but he had missed it up until this point. Look in verse 5. Man, isn't this verse distorted time and time again by modern culture? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking here in our church at a memorial service, and one of the speakers is a, is, is a devout someone of another denomination. We'll leave it at that. And in this particular denomination, he and I are always kidding each other their denomination believes, and this is one of their key verses, that you know what, anytime you sin and fall out of God's grace, you got to head back up to the baptistry and be baptized again. Can you imagine how many baptismal certificates you and I would have in a lifetime? But they really believe that. And man, he'll get fighting mad if we get into a discussion about this. It, it, it quickly moves from a discussion to a debate, and from a debate to somebody gets angry. So we just kind of make jest of it, hug necks, and go on. Now we do the corona bump and go on. But so many denominations have taken this picture. You do understand, don't you, that you could go in and you go into the, bapti uh, the baptistry pool as a dry sinner and you come out as a wet sinner. Can I hear an amen? I mean, that's all it is. And by the way, for so many, and we had one of our... What was it? A couple years ago, I baptized one of our fifth graders here in the baptistry, and he asked me, now, Pastor Mike, is this holy water? I said, it's holy, okay. Right out of the Longview Treatment Center, fall, right, right down there, man, they got, I mean, they treated it for us. But you understand, baptism doesn't save. 
But this has been such a distorted statement and verse time and time again. You know, what's amazing to me is in our Old Testament, we have three really prolific Old Testament prophet writers. We have Jeremiah, we have Ezekiel, and we have Isaiah. I I just wrote down Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, because even in the Old Testament, people were getting this. Nicodemus, Nick at night would have had this. The Bible says, Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you and and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your, your, your idols. Verse 26, Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart. See, even in the Old Testament, some had it and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And then Ezekiel said this in Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit in you. Hey, the teacher had so much scripture. I just wonder how he had missed it. Hey, you in the shadows, you, you do know, don't you, you got to be born again. You got to be regenerated. Yeah, but how can I do that? Well, understand it's not of water, but it is a spiritual change that God brings, his spirit that he brings in you and through you. Wow, what a key moment. And we just watch this unfold. You see, that's a work of God. Man's water cannot save. God does his washing through what? The conviction and our repentance. That's the washing that he's doing on the inside. If you don't believe that, Paul states that so crystal clear when he spoke to Titus in Titus 3, 5, Listen to Paul's words. No way to worm out of this. Crystal clear, Paul said he, speaking of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, he saved us, Titus 3, 5, not because of the righteous things we've done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of a rebirth and renewal of the spirit. Palogenesi. The word there in the Greek language, rebirth, it means to be regenerated or rebirthed anew or a new work of God. You see, the rabbis had been teaching for some time all the way through the Old Testament that there'd be one day there'd be coming a Messiah. We know that means that's the messianic hope. That's the thread throughout our Old Testament. There'll be one coming. He'll he'll have a new work here on earth, the cosmos. And not just here on earth, but the world in general. He'll put in us a new heart and a new spirit. In verse six, that which is born of flesh is flesh and that which is born of spirit is spirit. It's not another birth you need, Nicodemus. It's a new heart. Just to be reincarnated and born again fleshly is going to put you back in the same situation you're already in, born again to sinful parents. 
That'll do no good. We're talking about a new birth, a regeneration of your heart. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day, after reading the old covenant as the veil remains uplifted because it is removed in Christ. Let me tell you something. The first thing that Jesus drives home is you can be blinded. You can be blinded to the truth of what true salvation really is. And what blinds you? This whole concept of sin and legalism. Thinking that you and I can work our way into heaven. I'm telling you, the best that you and I could do would never be sufficient for true salvation. Aren't you thankful today that our Lord Jesus saved us? Man, that's great news, isn't it? Let me tell you something. The Lord Jesus did something else here in his teaching. He also showed Nicodemus that the darkness of sin cannot hide the light of Jesus. The darkness of sin cannot hide the light of Jesus. Look in verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered to him and said to him in verse 10, you are the teacher of Israel. By the way, the Greek article there best rendered, if you have a translation today that you're holding, it says, you are the teacher of Israel. I think you have the most literal rendering there from the original Greek. Some translations like the NIV almost made it into a question. Like, aren't you, aren't you one of those key teachers Aren't you the teacher of Israel? Aren't you the teaching leader of this whole nation? Wow. Jesus brings back home the truth that in the teacher you should know these things. Can I just stop here as a side note? Here's a guy that had eclipsed being a deacon. Here's a guy that had superseded seminary. Here's a guy that had all of the trappings of the church, religious experience, if you will. And he's slipping around at night, I believe personally, because he didn't want Jesus to know who he was. Isn't that a joke? Thinking they was going to hide in the shadows because something was missing in his life. Something was missing. And you know, as much theology as you may want to learn or as less as you want to learn, let me tell you something. One thing that every human being in this place and every person that can hear my words understands, there's been those times in all of our lives when we know something's missing. If you're here today and you're married you know those moments in your marriage that hey this is not how this is supposed to function something's missing and in your spiritual life you understand in a covenant with God those moments and those stretches in life when things are missing and that is when that spirit of God is knocking 
What a key moment. Nicodemus, conqueror, ruler of people, teacher of Israel, slips off in night so none of his cohorts will see him. Out of the hurt and inside of his heart and life that something is missing, something is wrong. And Jesus takes again that sword of grace and mercy and just pierces right to the moment. Did you see? I know people mock they, they laugh, literally, in our city. They laugh about a church that goes out and shares the gospel and witnesses with the gospel. I've heard it time and time again. Do you see what the Lord Jesus did? He witnessed. He reaches down inside of the very depths of who he is, our God and our human being, and he witnesses to Nicodemus. He throws his best shot. Look in verse number 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify as to what we've seen. And you do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then look how he begins to witness. Big statement, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven but he who de descended into, from heaven, and here again is Jesus' favorite term for himself, the Son of Man. Do you see the Lord Jesus, what he's doing witnessing? He, he witnesses, first of all, through the incarnation of who he is. We know what incarnation means. It is what? Becoming what? Flesh. It's becoming human. That word incarnation, God taking on human flesh, incarnation. That son of man. You talk about apologetics and a defense. Aren't we thankful for our Lord and Savior that from the very beginning knew why he came, where he was going, and what was going to happen to him? And he's already just witnessing, pouring his heart out to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, I'm here. Understand, this place that you call heaven, it's my home. Heaven is my backyard. Isn't that what Paul called the mysterion in the Greek language? The mystery of God in Christ reconciling a world to himself. God becoming flesh, living a sinless life, going to the cross, being put to death and created by the very creatures that were sinning against him and he did all of this to, re to receive them unto himself and to be regenerated and saved. That is a mystery. Nicodemus, do you have it? Let me invest. You see, world religions are all about who can get up to heaven. Jesus says, let me tell you the real essence of true regeneration, it's about God coming here to save you. It's not about trying to reach to God. It's God reaching to you. And it reminds us that our salvation is not something ever we do. Why do we keep going back to that? Why does culture keep going back to that? How many generations of people will it take first century still battling that? 2020, still battling that. Salvation is not anything we do. The incarnation, 
Salvation is nothing more than the supreme work of God. And let's be honest, without our faith in him and choosing to receive what he's given us, we too would be groping around in the darkness. The incarnation. But look in verse 14. He does something more than that in this testimony, his witnessing. He says, as Moses in verse 14 lifted up the servant in the wilderness, the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes will have eternal life. Man, Jesus, the greatest teacher ever. Nicodemus, you probably had this 30, 40 times on test all the way through your educational career. As you've gone through that history of the old, those first five books are your primer. So Nicodemus, do you remember all those times you got the questions right? About how God's people remember in the Old Testament in this particular moment when God unleashed those snakes on them? those serpents on them. He did so, do you remember what it was for? Because of their grumbling. God hates grumbling. He hates it. And you remember, finally, they took on the stick and they made that serpent and they lifted it up. And Jesus is just letting them know here, hey, I want you to understand, not just incarnation is a big part of this regeneration, but the very crucifixion as well. Don't you remember, Nicodemus, as they lifted up that, that very stick and that very essence of that serpent, the only way people be saved is if they looked upward on that stick, on that rod, at that serpent that had been made and had faith and kept that in sight, then through that faith would they be saved. And Jesus just was already witnessing already laying the seed. You know, as a side note, Nicodemus is only mentioned three times in our New Testament. This is the first time we have him. The second time we know that Nicodemus burst onto the scene when he is letting the other rulers know that this man ought to have a fair hearing in all the trials of Jesus. But we see him a third time with Joseph of Arimathea when they go to take the very essence when all the other disciples had run the Bible says Nick makes a final appearance to help take care of the body of the very one that he was so uniquely infatuated with. There's something different about you. Only someone with God with him could do these miracles that you're doing. Over in John chapter 2, I believe it's around verse 23, the Bible says all these people were following God, or following Jesus, and they were following him because they were so enamored with what he was doing. Nicodemus too, and the Sanhedrin as well, must have been pretty compelled to see someone that had so much power and authority. I wrote down in my notes, Isaiah 45, 22. Isaiah wrote these words, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You see, we are people of salvation but by one way, through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
There may be a lot of things we get wrong as a denomination. And that'll be sad if that's the case. But I'll tell you one thing we better not, any of us of any denomination get wrong, and that is how can we be saved? How can we be regenerated? And when you look at Americans across the board, people to this day, really many of them don't understand. They are in darkness. Sin can do that. But let me tell you, even in the midst of sin, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ still shines. You see what he was doing with Nicodemus? He's reminding him. He took him all the way back to Moses. And he says, hey, what about this? Moses believed and God what? He honored that. And Moses is with the Lord. Abraham, Abraham trusted and the Bible says that he was counted unto what? Those in righteousness. David, you remember King David, don't you, Nicodemus? He believed, he trusted. Even old Samuel, Samuel's incredible words, does the Lord delight in our sacrifice and offerings as much as us obeying the Lord? And then Samuel says, oh no, our obedience is all more greater. You see, light is so very important when it comes to salvation. More at midweek, folks, know that when it comes to light, that my favorite historical moment of all time when it comes to light was about a country and western singer years ago by the name of Hank Williams. Hank Williams, as you many know, died at the age of 29. He died in a Cadillac in the back seat, had a flask of vodka in his coat pocket, and he died on New Year's Eve. And it all ended there, but the story is much broader when it comes to the light of the life of Hank Williams. What's so amazing about his life is four years before he was found dead, he had gone there to a hotel in Knoxville, was going to head on up to Canton, Ohio, and a big snowstorm came in. His flight was canceled. So he got a young freshman student from Auburn University to drive him in this rented Cadillac all the way to Canton, Ohio, but he never made it. In West Virginia, when that young 19-year-old driver got out to fill the car up, he opened the back door, and there slumped over in the seat was Hank Williams graveyard dead oh they called they drove him to the closest hospital he could to revive him but as the doctors told that young freshman Auburn student over and over again hey he's dead he's really dead but you know four years before that Hank Williams had written the lyrics of an interesting song called I saw the light and those words that Hank Williams wrote he said, I wandered so aimlessly, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. You know, four years before Hank Williams died in the back of that Cadillac, he was out in San Diego, and even four or five years before his death, he was already so juiced up on drugs and alcohol 
that he was at a concert in San Diego one night and he had two showings and after about the second or third song in that first showing, he was so inebriated and so high that they pulled him off stage, ran in another group, and they asked a lady backstage by the name of Minnie Pearl. They said, Minnie Pearl, you put Hank in a car, go get him a bunch of coffee. He's got a second part of this show and a whole nother show to do. We've got to get him sobered up. So history tells us that Minnie Pearl and Hank Williams got in the back of a chauffeured car and were driving around San Diego with lots of black coffee. And all of a sudden, in his stupor, Hank Williams started to sing that song. I saw the light. I saw the light. And all of a sudden, Minnie Pearl began to sing with him. And there the two sat in the back of that chauffeured vehicle singing, I saw the light. And history tells us that all of a sudden, in the middle of that singing, Hank Williams stopped, looked at Minnie Pearl and says, Minnie, I can't see the light. Minnie, there ain't no light. You know, I've often thought of all the historical moments when it comes to light. Here was one that wrote one of the greatest songs about the light of our Lord. But yet the very author himself evidently never really saw it. And it just reminds me of how close people come to true regeneration. How are we saved? We're saved, but yet by understanding out of our sin, admitting that sin, and out of that call of the Holy Spirit that something's missing and amiss and wrong in our life, being responsive to that and repenting of that, pledging, we're going to go in a totally different direction. And it's out of that faith and that profession that the Bible says when we call upon the Lord, we will be saved. And I just ask you, how difficult is it really, really that difficult? to be able to, even through the sin and the veil, as Paul described it, to be able to see the truth. We're saved because of God's work and his mercy. And whether you're a Calvinist, hyper, five-point-plus today, or a four-and-a-halfer, let me tell you something. Whether he picks you out ahead of time, there's one thing that's not in debate. He sent his son to die for you. And that salvation, that regeneration, can only be received and initiated when you call out to him and say, Lord, I believe. Something's missing in my life, Lord. And so I'm going to trust you. And I stand before you today, broken and marred in my own making, my own sin. And Lord, I do see the light. Would you today save me? At each of our venues today, we're about to cut away and have a time of invitation. 
but I'm going to pray for all of those that can hear the gospel today that this might be the day of their regeneration. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for these few moments that we've had together, the power of your word. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for the visual picture, not just five or six things that we believe, but the visual picture of the gospel in action by not Paul, although those were great moments, not one of the disciples, although those were incredible scriptural moments, but by God himself in the flesh. If we desire to know how to be saved, wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it register if we would look to God himself? Not someone that wrote a religion of Hindu, or not some man-made author that came up with concepts of other denominations or other cults or other beliefs, or not by someone that added text and additional things to the Bible, but the holy word of God. What does God say about true salvation? And I thank you for the Lord Jesus' words. Oh, it's not of the physical water. Oh, it's not of something that you could ever do, manufacture. It's not of your works. But it's of being regenerated. And the the spirit that only I can bring you. In the covenant that I have died for. And Father, today, if there be someone that has something inside of their life at this very moment that's missing... They know deep inside where only they can feel and sense and see as the Holy Spirit is at work today. My goodness, it's not a fat, ball-headed, stuttering man, but it's the power of the gospel. And Father, I'm just so thankful today that your spirit is still at work. It's at work in Africa and Slovenia and Brazil. It's at work in America and in Texas and in Longview. It is at work. And Father, it's not too late today for someone to open their heart and say, Lord, I believe. I trust. And as a sinner, I will do all that I can, but Lord, I know without you in my life, dwelling in me and living in me, by faith I'll trust you to turn away from my sin and self to you, Lord Jesus, for life ahead. Father, we trust you as our God that created us and that can save us, that you will do this work in our life as only you can do. And Father, we pray right now that you would do and initiate that work in our hearts and life. In these things we pray in Jesus' name.